Hello, my name is Marielle Harris, and I'm one of the producers for 49. Just a quick note that this episode was recorded in September 2021 before Judd Devermont departed the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Here's the episode. Welcome to 49. My name is Judd Devermont. I'm the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. And I'm Nicole Willett. I'm Chief of Staff at the Open Society Foundation and, like Judd, have served at the National Security Council as well as the U.S. State Department and Senate Foreign Relations. This podcast has everything you need to know about U.S. policy towards Sub-Saharan Africa. What happened in the past? What should the Biden administration do? Plus, we promise to deliver the goods in 15 minutes or less, one country at a time. This episode is about Cameroon, and we are joined by Chris Fumunio, a senior associate and regional director for Central and West Africa at the National Democratic Institute. So to kick it off, Judd, let's cover a brief history of U.S. policy towards Cameroon. The United States established a consulate in Cameroon on July 4, 1957, three years before independence. It was opened on the U.S. national holiday to show solidarity with the Cameroonians. The U.S. government was monitoring two issues in those early days. First, the communist-backed Union of the Cameroon's Populations, the UPC, which conducted attacks in the port city of Douala and carried out guerrilla warfare from the southwest. And two, whether the British-administered UN territory of southern Cameroon would join the Francophone Cameroon, which it ultimately did in 1961. While the embassy was in Yaoundé, there was a small American presence in Douala to serve as a transportation hub for Chad, Nigeria, the Central African Republic, and Gabon. Almost everything for those U.S. posts came through Douala in those early days. While the French had a significant presence in Cameroon's ministries, universities, and security services, the United States had good relations with the country's first leader, Amadou Ahijo, who met with Presidents Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, and Reagan. Ahijo told the U.S. diplomats that he wanted, quote, diversification in his foreign partnerships. In 1982, Ahijo resigned from the presidency for health reasons. His prime minister, Paul Bia, became president. One former U.S. diplomat said, quote, the people had high hopes for the new president. They were wrong. Bia faced a counter coup in 1984, which had a lasting effect on his leadership and deepened his suspicions of various ethnic, language, and regional groups. He moved the country from a federal to a unitary system, upsetting the fragile balance that had previously existed between the North, the South, Francophone, and Anglophone parts. His government indulged in corruption and staged illegitimate elections, most notably in 1992, which prompted the U.S. government to close its USAID mission and halt military sales. Despite these problems, the United States found utility in Cameroon's location and its relative political stability. U.S. Embassy staff based in Chad and the Central African Republic were evacuated to Cameroon during bouts of instability, and the country hosted refugees from across the region. And, while Cameroon was hardly a leader on the international stage, it happened to sit on the U.N. Security Council during the debate over the Iraq War. That merited a White House invitation for Paul Bia to meet President Bush in March 2003. Cameroon's proximity to violence-wracked Nigeria also increased its importance. The United States established a small outpost 
uh, in the northern city of Garraway to support the Cameroon military's fight against Boko Haram. Up to 300 U.S. military personnel advised and assisted the Cameroonian elite rapid intervention battalion known as the Burr as part of a broader multinational effort to counter violent extremism in the region. The Burr was accused of human rights abuses and the United States eventually cut its security assistance to the unit. In October 2016, a brutal crackdown on lawyers, teachers, and students in Cameroon's Anglophone region ignited a deadly civil war that continues to rage today. More than 4,000 people have died in the fighting, and some 700,000 have been displaced, with atrocities committed by all sides. The United States suspended Cameroon's trade preferences under the African Growth and Opportunity Act, also known as AGOA, and this year, Secretary Blinken imposed visa restrictions. Nicole, do you want to talk about a major U.S. policy success or failure? I think our policy record is mixed. It's complicated is really the answer to success and failure for the USG towards Cameroon. And that is because when you look at some of our policies, particularly related to security cooperation and reduction of extremist threat in the region, there has been some success. I, I think it's fair to say that U.S. troops that helped train Cameroonians ultimately contributed to pushing back on Boko Haram coming out of Nigeria, as well as contributing in some ways to peacekeeping in the Central African Republic next door, as well as some pushback on elements that are in the broader region that, that are too complicated for this particular short chat. However, you know, as has happened a lot of times with security cooperation, the most effective units have also been accused of some of the most extreme human rights abuses imaginable. Under Trump, when the security cooperation was withheld, so this is about $17 million or so, removing, among other things, some um, tactical support to the Cameroonian government and to BIR specifically, um, the Trump government never really came out and said, this is because of human rights violations and you've got to stop under Leahy, under the Leahy law for us to come back and work with you. Instead, it sort of introduced it within the larger question of uh, U.S. drawdown through AFRICOM on the continent of U.S. troops and left it to interpretation. That, of course, was not ideal. As um, Secretary Blinken came in and the Biden administration, again, Judd, as you said, they took further actions with visas. And I think there is much more focus on how to begin to wrestle with this complicated space. But I will say as a sort of policy of not doing security cooperation with human rights abusers, it was too late by the time we, we took those steps. So it, I think it is time for a relook here. So, Chris, this is not an easy one. But what should the Biden administration strategy toward Cameroon look like? Well, I think the Biden administration has gotten off to a good start with regards to its Africa policy overall. The intentions are good and uh, highly plausible. I would just say that with regards to Cameroon, the Biden administration needs to be more forward leaning. It needs to treat Cameroon as a direct partner with all of its particularities its history, its diversity, and the complexities that do not necessarily exist in other African countries. And also that require that Cameroon not be seen through the prism of other partners with whom the U.S. may have relationships, but that Cameroon be treated more directly and in a more forceful, forward-leaning manner. All right, John, how do we make it happen? 
this is really a tough problem. And I know Chris is going to help me kind of walk through this a little more. But if we're just talking about the Anglophone crisis, which is, is truly a devastating catastrophe where there is a lot of human loss of life and destruction of property. We have to start with the acceptance that there are no angels here, that the government has been engaged in serious human rights abuses. But when you look at the Anglophone community, at least some of the separatists are doing some pretty atrocious things themselves. But there are civil society leaders in the diaspora and in Cameroon who want to have a peaceful negotiation to determine the future of Anglophone Cameroon. And we should be supporting that. I think as Chris said, we have to work with our partners, but have our own policy. So that means being more direct with France about what we need, what we should all be doing to address this, these challenges in Cameroon. But I think many of the African neighbors to Cameroon have been really quiet about this, this problem set. And I think that distinguishes it from West Africa, where sometimes you see, you know, leading countries get involved in for the Sahel, for example. But that's not happening in Cameroon, perhaps because Bia has been in power longer than almost everyone except for Obiang of EG. So it, I think that there's a need to say explicitly what our policy is to foster dialogue, particularly with actors that want peace, but then also bring in the neighbors and not be unafraid to disagree. Chris, maybe you can expand on that just a little bit. I want to make sure that we capture some of your thinking on, on this problem and how we go from where we are today to something that resembles peace and stability. Sure. I, and I would say also that, you know, the, the test of a great nation is also in its ability to help its friends and partners resolve small problems. And so this is something that I think the U.S. should be more engaged in, because when you look at the crisis, the Anglophone crisis today, Almost every ethos of American society is being tested in the Anglophone crisis. Issues of liberty, of freedom, of minority protection, of human rights violations or human rights protections, and all of the things that the United States cares about are being tempered with in today's Cameroon. Almost every provision under humanitarian law is being broken by the parties to the conflict. Churches are being attacked, schools are being attacked, villages are being burned down, civilians are being killed. And if you're a nation that holds dearly to these values, you can, you can subcontract your engagement in that kind of conflict. And I think the United States needs to be more forward leaning. I would just also say that with regards to the partners, the neighboring countries may be indifferent to this conflict because none of those neighboring countries has an Anglophone minority population. And none of those countries in the sub-region of Central Africa values has the same value systems on issues of the educational system, the Anglo-Saxon educational system, the common law legal system, the values that Anglophone Cameroonians hold dearly to are all foreign values to the countries of the Central Africa sub-region. So SAMAC, which is the sub-regional entity, has been indifferent, very inactive, when it comes to helping Cameroon deal with this crisis. And I think that's something that the United States can help with, given that it's got leverage, tremendous leverage, with every one of these countries on the continent. Chris, do you have one big idea, you know, something that's really going to make a difference that you want to put on the table? Sure. I think that with regards to this ongoing conflict, one big idea that comes to mind is the need for the United States to appoint a special envoy to deal with the Anglophone conflict in Cameroon. 
Because I remember that even before the war broke out in Ethiopia, that this conflict had been ongoing in Cameroon for over three to four years, and thousands of people had, had been killed. Over a million people have been displaced, either as internally displaced persons or as refugees. That by UN figures, close to four million people have been impacted either directly or indirectly by this crisis. We're also dealing with the reality that some of the actors or many of the actors that are involved in this crisis find themselves in countries and jurisdictions that may be outside of the reach of the bilateral mission that's represented by an embassy in country. And I think we need someone speaking on behalf of the United States who can go around and help tie these pieces together working obviously with the State Department as well as with the embassy on the ground, but that can have the bully pulpit and the mandate to be able to engage with all of these actors spread across the world to help us bring this conflict to an end. Chris, Cameroon is often called Africa in miniature. What does that expression mean to you? Well, that expression used to mean a lot for those of us who were born around independence and grew up in the 60s and in the 70s because people saw in Cameroon the diversity that's very representative of the African continent, whether it's in terms of diverse cultures and cultural backgrounds, diverse ethnicities, even the diversity in its vegetation, going all the way from the Sahel in the extreme north to the equatorial forest deep down in the south. And so people talked about Cameroon being Africa in miniature in very admirative terms because they saw in that country what the African continent represents in its best. Unfortunately, I have to admit, and I'll be the first to admit, that in the, five, in the last five, ten years, that glass of admiration has been shattered, it's been broken by the multiple crises in which Cameroon now finds itself to the point where I doubt that there's anyone out there repeating the mantra that Cameroon is Africa in miniature. Perhaps the Cameroon of the future may regain that appellation, but as we know it today, people look at Cameroon and wonder how this beautiful country now is engulfed existential crisis that undermine its very future and the well-being of its citizens. Well, that's the show. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and check out our analysis at csis.org backslash Africa. Thanks.